Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, behavior change scientist, and TEDx speaker. Please take a moment to watch my TEDx talk. The YouTube link is in the show description, and my talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. On this podcast, I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm talking about understanding leadership transformation and culture change to prevent burnout with organization development specialist, Alison Tsao. I came across Alison's work through an early podcast guest, Rachel Cook. Alison had a series of blog posts about transformational change and systems change. Alison is based in Australia. And as you know, I love to hear international perspectives. We haven't talked about change burnout much on this podcast. Yes, despite always promoting how to change on this podcast, too much change can also lead to burnout. So I appreciated Alison's expertise on this topic. Next week's mini episode, based on my discussion about role modeling with Alison, will focus on the importance of finding and being role models in changing burnout culture and burnout behaviors. You can also find Alison's key takeaways on the episode website, drjacquelinecurr.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Alison as much as I did. And apologies for any annoying ticks in the audio today. I am Alison Sow. I live in Sydney, Australia with my husband, daughter, and two stepsons, and our dog, Otto. I am the founder of Humans Who Lead, an OD consultancy specializing in leadership, transformation, and culture change. So Alison, please, can you describe your journey to where you are now in your career? Yes, I started in New York City, and I went to an undergrad business school, and I majored in marketing and management. And at the time, I thought business was going to be my career path. I left college and moved into a management consulting role, working in HR transformation. And I did that for a number of years. And focusing on processes and technologies was great because it was quite black and white. But what I started to notice in my transformational practice was that a lot of the processes and systems were really challenged because it was the people who needed to adapt to the change. And so I started to do more work and change training and communications at the time, but it's still, there was something missing for me in the transformational journey. It wasn't just black and white, install a process or install a system. There was a significant people component that, that I felt was missing from the HR transformation practice. And so from there, I was actually invited to take on an HR business partner role at a global bank. And that's where I got to see more of that people component come to life. I was able to work on some really cool projects at this bank around culture change, in particular, changing the culture from the inside and out. So how we engage with our customers, but also changing the way people did their day-to-day -day work to influence how they changed, uh, how they interacted with their customers. And from that HR business partner role, I fell into the field of OD, organization development. I hadn't known that I was practicing it. It came very intuitive to me. 
But when I started to network with other OD practitioners, they really encouraged me to take up my master's in OD. And I went back to school in 2014 to get my master's in OD at Pepperdine University. And this kind of theme of transformation was really growing in me. Having started my career in HR transformation, working internally at a bank on their transformational um, projects, and now going through this OD program was very personally transforming for me. It's where in my life, I started to question a lot of the decisions I was making, what I was doing with my career and my life. And I ended up moving or deciding to move to Sydney, Australia in 2014 as a result of studying, um, starting this program and rethinking the direction I wanted to take my life. And for anybody who's grown up in New York City the way I have, it can be a really exciting, vibrant community and corporate environment. But at the same time, it can be very frenetic and exhausting and demanding on your lifestyle. And so I really was at a place in my career, having started this journey in organization development, thinking about what, how can I make a bigger impact? What is transformation in organizations for people? And how do I make an impact with what I know about my own lived experience of transformation having moved myself from New York City to Sydney and and essentially restarting and rebuilding my life here. So it's been quite a ride. And since moving to Sydney, I've started my own OD consultancy, Humans Who Lead, and I've been practicing now for the last few years here, really working with organizations to help help them understand the nature of transformation better. I think it's a buzzword right now in corporate environments where people will say that they desire transformation, but they don't actually know what that means or that what that might demand of them as an individual. And so being that coach and advisor, and, and I almost like to call myself a Sherpa, how do I guide people through a transformational process? Because it is all about, pro- how do I guide people through a transformational process so that they can achieve the outcomes that they're desiring? That's fabulous. And I I really can resonate with what you've experienced about where is the person in this, because it's also something that concerns me as we start to actually talk about systemic racism, for example, or anything that's systemic. It feels like we're saying there is a system that's outside of me. And so that's important to recognize this is not the individual's fault, but actually to change the system, the individuals within the system have to change. So I'm really torn because I think it's so important to to recognize that there are um, forces outside of the individual that are influencing us. But yet at the same time, that it's not a thing that can change on its own. It can only change if we choose to make different decisions. And so in my journey of trying to understand behavior change, when I actually realized, okay, even if I do want to change a system, or I want to change policies, there's always a person behind that system on that policy. And I do understand human behavior change. (laughs) So it was always like, oh, phew, I can just come back to my behavior change 101. And just I have to apply it to people in different places in that system. So I'm really excited to to talk to you about your human um, centered approach to leadership and to cultural change. Yes, please describe that 
unique approach that you have to culture change at work? And how did you arrive um, at the particular solution to really focus on what you're doing? Sure. It's best summed up with this beautiful Ruby quote. And it, it goes something like, yesterday I was clever and I wanted to change the world. And today I am wise, so I'm changing myself. And so a lot of my own personal transformation journey, as well as the journey I've seen organizations through, all requires the bravery to confront that if you really want to change the system, you must start with changing yourself. Yeah, changing your mindset, the way you view the world, the way you think about things, perhaps some of your biases and or blind spots. And once you start to do the work on yourself, the system will start to change as a result. And so when we talk about systems change, a lot of times leaders can be tempted to say, okay, but everyone else needs to change or we need to change processes and policies. And early on in my career, when I mentioned I started an HR transformation at a consultancy, that's exactly the disconnect that I was noticing. I was noticing we were over-indexing on changing processes and redesigning them, over-indexing and investing in millions of dollars of technology, and none of that was working. And none of that was working because we didn't recognize that the humans behind the processes and the systems also needed to change. And in order to do that, we have to start engaging them in the conversation. It's not enough to simply create communications It's not enough to launch a training event or workshop. We have to really engage with people where they're at and help them understand what is changing and why. And so that's essentially the the crux of my transformational process is really human-centric, helping people to engage more individually first with the change that they desire on behalf of the system and using themselves as an instrument to change, self as instrument to change, we like to call it, in in order to impact that system. And that's especially true if you talked about the kind of diversity, equity, inclusion sphere. That's especially true in that space as well, which is why I'm drawn to work in that space as well. So maybe let's start there a little bit. How how does your, your work address diversity, equity, and inclusion then? Yeah, so a lot of leaders are coming to me right now to talk about inclusion as an example. There's a lot of talk based on what we see happening in our political and societal systems around how do we create organizations and communities that are more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. And so my work in organizations is really helping them to understand what is it mean to you when you want to be more inclusive? We see a lot of chief inclusion officer titles coming up, chief equity officers, a lot of initiatives around belonging. But what I really want to understand from people is what does that mean to you on a personal level? What does it mean to be included? And on the converse side, maybe the darker, more honest and real conversation that not enough organizations are having, what does it mean or feel like to be excluded? And how are your people unintentionally being excluded today? And so it's really being able to ask those brave questions in an initial conversation to outline what inclusion means to an organization and then how you start to build the system or redesign the system around that. And that takes some conversation in the darker spheres of oppression, 
marginalization, assimilation, colonization. A lot of these darker territories or less spoken about territories, perhaps, that when you have enough trust and credibility and rapport with a client, you can start to navigate. And that's my hope and my desire is to be able to do that with clients in a safe way so that we can do some of the deeper work around what it really means to be an inclusive organization. And although you're taking a very individual approach to to what you're doing, do you tend to do this in teams or are you really doing it as one-to-one? Because I can imagine that could challenging in both situations. Absolutely. And so we do it both ways, right? I would sometimes start with a one-on-one conversation. Sometimes I would start in a team conversation And it's all about trust, right? If your team has a level of trust where we can actually start to open that conversation, then that's a very natural entry point. And from there, once we can personally connect with what inclusion means for us, and we've got a common working definition as an example, then we can start to open our eyes to, in this context for diversity, equity, inclusion, ways where we almost have internalized oppression ourselves. How do we actually take on and start to believe some of society's message around how we're marginalized? How do we see it in our interactions, our interpersonal relationships? And then periscope up to the system to see, oh, okay, how do I look at it from a systemic lens now? And that's oftentimes the lens that's missing when we talk about racism or sexism or any ism in the workplace is that systemic lens. How is the system being designed intentionally or unintentionally, that's another debate, to give certain people privilege and keep others on the margins? I can imagine these conversations are so difficult to have. So what's some of the pushback you're getting when you go into an organization? Because I can imagine someone might bring you in and be thinking that if you're thinking about cultural change, that it is going to be this other thing that changes. It's not me personally that has to do this hard work. So I was thinking about that kind of the barriers people have to doing this work. But also one of the concepts from my field of science is readiness of fit. So sometimes you're trying to bring something into an organization and they're not ready to receive it yet because they haven't got the precursors that are there. And for me, one of the things that that stood out from what you said there is, is trust. So I'm wondering how often do you actually have to do like some pre-work to get people one, ready to be open to go through this process and two, for there to be trust in the workplace that they feel they want to take part in this? A hundred percent. Yes. I, there's a couple of things in there. And the first one I'll start at is trust is built through relationships. And so as an OD consultant, I would never go into an organization and impose what I think you should do. And so if you're engaging me on a conversation around inclusion, the first conversation is typically me doing a lot of listening and perhaps asking a question or two. Yeah, I want to understand what is your appetite? Where are you at right now? What is the appropriate level of change that you're seeking for what your system can support and thrive in? Because we see a lot of organizations, right, chasing really ambitious change agendas. And diversity, equity, inclusion is one territory or one example of a change agenda, yeah? But lots of organizations are chasing very ambitious change agendas. A lot of my role is actually helping them to understand what is sustainable 
what is healthy for their organization to prevent change fatigue and the type of burnout that I'm seeing in organizations right now. And so building trust starts with listening and starts, where meet, starts with meeting your clients where they're at. And from there, you can start to ask questions to understand where is the appetite for change? Where is that kind of learning zone where it's just stretch enough for you that we don't inadvertently fall into the panic zone? We don't want to stay in the comfort zone. We want to get into that learning zone, that developmental edge without throwing people into a panic and saying, I can't do this, this is too hard or it's too much. And that happens through conversation and relationship. So you mentioned burnout there, and it sounds like maybe you're talking about change burnout, which I think is something that can happen as well. And we see that sometimes in medical institutes, every new recommendation there is, or every new slight change to something, you you just can't take it all in and you don't know anymore the things I need to pay attention to. So tell me a little bit about the types of burnout you're seeing in the companies you work with and whether you think this human-centered cultural change that you're working towards, do you think that's going to help with different types of burnout, including, for example, workplace burnout, exhaustion as a whole? Yes. One of the biggest type of burnout that I'm seeing right now in organizations is change fatigue. And that's a result of changes being introduced one on top of the other. So many change initiatives that are happening that people actually can't keep on top of what is changing, what's expected of them, and also how they're relevant, how they stay relevant, because they're trying to keep on top of new skills, new policies, new laws, new et cetera. And so one of the key ways that I work with organizations to handle that is to get them hyper-focused, not on a long list of change priorities, but on one or two things that really matter. And then really leveraging what we know about motivation theory is breaking those down into incremental chunks. And the the example I love to give is because it's so common and, and relatable is losing weight. We could set a really audacious goal and say, I want to lose 20 pounds or kilos, depending on where you are in the world. And that could feel really great and really energizing once you said it. You said, yes, I'm really committed to that. And then tomorrow I might decide just to go on a crash diet. I'm all in. I'm going to cut out all the junk food and start an intense exercise regimen. And then by day three, I'm exhausted and I give up. Yeah. And that's a a lot of how organizations right now are looking at change. They set these ambitious change agendas with many priorities and they start to burn out. They put all their resource at it, but they don't take anything else off the plate and they burn out. And what I'm suggesting here is that motivation theory in that context of losing weight would say chunk out small goals that help you get towards your bigger goal. So for example, if I know that I can drink eight glasses of water a day and that will contribute to my long-term weight loss, maybe I want to start with that. Maybe for the next seven days, I set a goal for myself to drink eight glasses of water a day. And after seven days, lo and behold, what happens is I feel confident. I've done it. I was able to do that. I feel confident. Let me introduce another micro habit. Maybe the next micro habit is I'm going to go for a 10 minute walk every day, get myself moving. And I introduce that and I continue to drink my eight glasses of water. This is how change can ultimately start to happen in organizations. If we start to break out incremental goals to help people stay focused and also build their momentum and confidence 
that they can change. Because I think the other thing that leads to burnout in organizations is that people feel like they're being left behind. I don't have the skills or the relevance. You're not giving me the support and training I need. And so therefore I'm simply going to sit still and feel left behind. And I don't know what to do about it. That's the common sentiment. And so to really harness people's energy, because I do believe that most people do want to change. We're wired to change as humans. We've been evolving and adapting for centuries, thousands of years. And and so we are wired to change. How do we actually harness that and what we know about change to do it in a way that's healthier and more sustainable and doesn't lead to change fatigue and burnout? Now, I'm so glad that you take such a behavioral approach to this because that's something I really value. And I certainly know how hard behavior changes. And it it is interesting that we do seem to underestimate that. I I don't know. I feel like we should have noticed how often we fail with our diets. (laughs) And I'm not going to just take the same theory and throw it into a workplace at scale, having not tested whether I can do it myself. That's why the diet industry is so successful, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. So how are you seeing changes in in leadership then? And as well as the small goals, how are you really helping people ensure that behavior change is sustainable? Firstly, I don't know if we can ever ensure that behavior change is sustainable. And so that's where that self-awareness and starting with the individual conversation really starts. Do you as a leader firstly believe that in order for the system to change, that you yourself play a role in that? That's probably the biggest question I ask leaders early on is if that insight is there, then we can work with that and there's so much potential for change. If that insight isn't there and that leader continues to believe that change must happen outside of them, that's where we start to get incongruences because when that leader will start to lead that change, their people will start to ask for role modeling. We hear a lot of people say, I need my leader to role model and walk the talk of change. And that typically tends to be the disconnect and where change programs start to fall down is when me as an employee in the organization looking around at my leaders and saying, wait, you expect all of this of me, but I don't see you doing any of this. So why should I try so hard? And so I really start the conversation with leaders around, first of all, their personal insight. Why do they want this change? Why do they believe it's the right thing to do? Why do they believe it matters? And then what role do they play and how are they willing to change in support of that role modeling and demonstrating of commitment? And that isn't an easy task, Jacqueline. However, nothing great was achieved overnight. When we're talking about transformational change, this isn't just implement a system. This isn't redesign a process. This is something significant. And most organizations who are chasing transformational change right now also have to recognize that it's a change that's going to put in question the very identity of your organization to date, right? Transformational change is identity shifting. It often requires different behaviors and mindsets. And I think that's what's important from the behavioral science is the role of role modeling. When I I, I was thinking these schematics that I learned during my education to become a behavior change scientist, and we have this really big box that's about 
mastery. And, and in there is this self-efficacy, which is your confidence and your ability to do something. And it was always such a key part of any behavior change process. And I remember really having to understand it. If that was like one of the really important levers, then I also had to understand how do I change it? How do I give people that confidence and the skills to do it? And actually one of the most important things is role models in that process. Because when you see somebody else like you who shows you that they can do it, then you too have the confidence that you can do it. Plus then you have somebody that you can talk to about the process they went through. How did they learn? So the comfort of a buddy or, or a partner in that process. So I think that I think sometimes we throw around something like a role model as though, oh, kids need role models or like it's just this kind of nice thing to have. But actually it's really integral to the behavior change process. So I agree. I'm so glad that you're focusing on that. Yes. And to be honest, some people don't even know what the change looks like that you're asking for. So above and beyond that, they can also see, oh, that's what you mean by shared leadership or innovation or more trust or inclusion when they see you actually demonstrating it. And that is so important because you always say that be the change you want to see. Uh, And again, it just sounds such a great thing, but it is, it's so important because these concepts are hard to get your head around. You definitely need examples. That's totally true. One of the other things that I have struggled with myself in so many different ways. So individual change versus trying to change other people. And so in so many levels, I have accepted I I can't change other people, but yet I'm so invested in changing other people because I want the world to change. And I don't know how many times I've had this conversation with my coach and she said, you can't change your husband's behavior. You have to accept where you're at. Can you feel like this when he's this? And as I say, on so many levels, I really, really appreciate that. But at the same time, I don't want us to be constrained by saying, okay, I'm just going to change myself. And it doesn't matter if my coworkers don't change. And so there is also this part of me that wants to teach people how to become advocates for change so that they can actually be asking for change. And again, I just started reading a burnout book. And again, the focus of that was at the individual level, because you could change that more quickly than the organization or the system. And part of me, again, is so conflicted because I'm like, yeah, but if we keep just focusing on the individual, when is that system and that organization going to change? So can you help me (laughs) through this and sort of thinking about when does it become more that we are influencing each other? Maybe that's what it is. Mm, Yeah, there's so much in that question. And it's such a keen insight, Jacqueline. I often feel the same. And I have to remind myself, I, first of all, we all have to accept the reality that none of us has the power or authority to change someone else as much as we'd love it. As much as it would be so much easier in our lives, we simply cannot. We can influence, but we can never force anyone to change. And so that's key. And that's quite a liberating idea then, because it actually gives permission to many of us helpers or fixers or coaches out there to say, I want to empower you and give you full agency to decide if, when, or how you want to change. It is not up to me. The only thing that I can do is be the change I want to see, to use your words, and share that with you for inspiration. 
Yeah. But the magical thing starts to happen. And I talk to a lot of my clients about this in my coaching is that if you stop focusing on how you want to change the other person and you focus on how you want to change yourself by sheer magic, your interaction with that person will change because you have changed the pattern. You have disrupted the pattern of how you engage as an example. So for example, if in my marriage, my husband typically ignores me when I say something passive aggressive, I'm making this up because I'm actually not passive aggressive, (laughs) but say, say I say something passive aggressive and he ignores me. And that tends to be the pattern of our interaction. I can decide in a moment, I can't change the fact that he ignores me, but I can change the fact that I'm acting in a passive aggressive way. And next time I could decide to do it differently and address the issue more directly by saying what I'm really thinking. And when I do that, it invites him to respond differently. And so that's the key. If you can change the way you interact, that's an invitation to somebody else for them to change the way they've interacted with you in the past as well. And that's how change happens. And that is such a real and lived experience of so many people that I coach is that when they've decided to act or behave differently than they normally would, the entire interaction will change. You imagine if you started to do that then with groups of people, so that would look like team coaching as an example, that's when you start to get systemic change. You imagine if you start to do that with, for example, if I'm thinking of inclusion for groups of white men, You imagine you have that conversation with groups of white men who typically sit in positions of power and authority in our organizations and our systems. You could imagine how much systemic change could happen if those insights were gleaned with those groups of people. And so you start to see then how individual work can start to translate into systemic work and why it almost needs to happen at the individual, it needs to start at the individual level for us to significantly change systems. And I'm not arguing, there's a lot of literature and great work out there that talks about policy changes and structural changes. I'm not arguing that's not important. That is absolutely important. What I'm trying to say is that for that to be sustainable over a long period of time, we need to change the way people think and behave in our systems to be able to support the long-term viability of our structure and reform and policy changes. And and I think it's still individuals that vote on a policy, that write a policy, et cetera. That's what we learned when we started trying to do advocacy work around, for example, PE in schools or other health issues that we knew legislators were, were working on. We had to actually find which legislators cared about this topic and were willing to then take a lead on it. It wasn't like we could change some policy (laughs) without an individual, you know? Exactly. The two are so linked. And once individuals can start to see the system and start to see the role that they play in the system, then they can make more self-aware choices on how to influence or disrupt the system. Because many of us think that we are just going along for the ride or don't have a lot of influence in the systems we live in. But that kind of herd thinking then leads to no change. And so we need enough people to say, actually, as an individual, as a part of a system, 
I can affect change if I'm brave enough and self-aware enough, self-aware enough to disrupt it. Yeah, that is so empowering. Yeah, it can be. And and how are you seeing a lot of differences in leadership at the moment with COVID? Do you feel like companies are more in need of your services? How has the, the pandemic affected how you approach the work you're doing? Yes. And in the beginning of the pandemic, I think people were a bit shell-shocked. And when they thought about culture and leadership and change, a lot of those initiatives got put on hold. And myself and, and people in my industry, it was almost as if there was a collective like holding of the breath, waiting to see what was going to happen. And now we're 18 months into this pandemic. And I think the recognition has landed for people that this type of work is needed more than ever. And the way it started to manifest is through connection to people, connection to teams, team cohesion, more building of trust and connection, and also a link to health and well-being. Because as, as social creatures, we're wired to connect. It feels unnatural to many of us to be sitting behind a computer screen for eight to 10 hours a day, jumping from one virtual meeting to another, kind of planted down in a chair. And so what leaders are coming to me now with is how do I in, help my team stay connected? And not just on the task right? Zoom meetings are really great for tasks. They're not as great for running into people in the corridor or having a casual chat around the water cooler or sitting down for a quick impromptu lunch with one or two colleagues. And that's what we're really missing. So leaders are coming to me asking, how can we create that sense of trust and connection with people without it being about productivity and tasks, but more about relationship and this sense even more so in a pandemic environment that we're all in this together and none of us is actually alone because many of us do have, we have different living situations and some folks are on their own, but if we can make the extra effort to simply connect because it feels great and because we don't want to leave anyone behind, I think that's what leaders are more oriented towards now more than ever. And I think the beautiful thing is that What this pandemic has given us is an opportunity to blur the lines between work and life. And some people might be opposed to that, but I say, what a beautiful thing when you can have a conversation about your daughter just interrupting your Zoom meeting and telling you a funny story or your dog barking in the background and gets to have a cameo on screen. I think it's made people a lot more relatable. And I think it's also made leaders more empathetic to themselves and to others, which is a key leadership trait that there's so much research coming out on is that the best leaders to lead through our complex times are empathetic. And interestingly, like you said, empathetic with themselves, because that, that, yeah, I mean, it does, it, it, it starts there. And and it's a great point because I just led a workshop recently where it was a group of leaders and we were talking about team cohesion and team engagement and much of the conversation and where it started with self-care and the recognition that you cannot help somebody else fill their cup if your cup is empty. And so self-care in this pandemic environment, I'm inviting people to double down on it because we're not we're just not meant to be sitting behind a computer screen for this long. And we have to find ways to have more meaningful and authentic conversations 
even if that means staying on the Zoom for an extra five minutes. <laughs> and it is really fascinating that companies now are really accepting that they are part of the health and well-being of their employees. I saw the same issues in schools. As a public health person, we would come in and say, for example, something like PE was related to health and that was important. And then we definitely have a lot of educators push back on that and say, no, our role is to teach the kids. Our role is not their health, right? That happens at home. That's through their parents. The same when we tried to do nutrition interventions in schools. This was all at first, definitely a lot of pushback. But then I think when they started to see Kids are coming, having not slept with anxiety, with poor nutrition and do the thing you want them to do, which is learn. So I think, again, it's sad that we almost have to break for people to see that. But if they do want employees to come and bring their best selves, then they definitely have to help them find their health to be able to do that. And again, I think the pandemic has just put that on red alert for everyone and make us realize more that, yeah, our health is actually a community (laughs) responsibility. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And it goes back to that systemic lens too. If you look at an individual as a beautiful system, we are such complex systems ourselves you can't just take the work part of you and fragment that out and bring that work part of you to work. We bring our whole selves to work. And in a pandemic, like I said, the gift in it has really forced us to acknowledge that there has been a blurring of the lines, which I think can be a really healthy thing. Yeah, some people might argue that is not their desire, but I struggle to fragment myself and just be work Allison and mom Allison separately and friend Allison differently. I bring all of those parts of myself to all parts of my life. And this pandemic has been an invitation for people to embrace more of that. And in that embracing, acknowledge that their health and well-being is a critical component to that. And I know there are still boundaries in place that we have to manage around emotional and mental well-being, but I do see more and more organizations stepping in. Whereas a decade or two ago, there were some clear boundaries around what role work should and shouldn't play in an employee's life. I see more and more organizations stepping in to be proactive as well. So not necessarily reacting or responding to, but being proactive about people's health and well-being because there is a direct translation to if you're happy and healthy at work, you're more productive, you're more creative, and you're more pleasant to work around. (laughs) Exactly. So you you mentioned a little bit there on mums, and do you have anything to share about your own motherhood journey in relation to work? Or can you talk a little bit about how your approach and your work is supporting working mums and any differences in the groups that you work with? Yes. Perhaps I'll start with my own journey as a working mom. I think I realized early on that balance was not what I was going to be seeking as a working mom. I really wanted integration and I wanted to be fully present in whatever was calling for my attention. And that isn't formulaic. That's completely fluid and emerging every single day. And so that takes a lot of self-discipline to check in with yourself in a moment and say, is my work calling for my attention right now? Or is my family or is my community or is, my, is it my volunteer work? And really being able to use your time wisely. I think the most precious resource for moms is time. There's so many demands on our plate. 
And so early on, I really had to find that bigger perspective around what was important to me and how could I find a fluidity in that and let go of the guilt and shame that easily accompanies that journey. Because <laughs> it, it, it definitely creeps in. It definitely creeps in in moments of when I'm sitting and doing some work, I think to myself, what am I missing out on? On the times I've had to skip dinner with my family, which is rare, but happens. I feel I have to let go of this guilt because they know I love them and they know that this is what I'm doing right now is important to me. And so I, I think when I talk to a lot of moms, that's essentially the struggle is you feel like you're not delivering in any part of life. You're like spread like peanut butter, right? You're a thin spread of peanut butter and uh, you're just getting by in all aspects of your life. And I would say we have to get away from that thinking. We have to get away from this fictitious idea that there is balance because there isn't. There is simply fluidity and the decisions we make in the moment that feel right for us in that moment. And it's so, I have to admit, you saying that almost gives me anxiety. I'm such a, I'm so controlling. I have to just accept that. But to think of this being fluid, I can see that the benefit, especially when you said, and just see what your body says is right. And I've talked to lots of coaches about yeah, being more intuitive in sensing these things. But I think that's something I'm still really struggling with and learning to do. So the idea of this fluidity is, whoa, that's exciting and scary. I'll just say that. Yeah, I totally get that, Jacqueline. And it's my life journey too. And I've done a lot of development to be able to be more intuitive about that fluidity. But what I will say is that it sits on a firm foundation of boundaries. Yeah, we have, we as women have to get better at defining and standing up for our boundaries and our societies and systems also have to get better about respecting those boundaries because I think people are used to asking, women are just powerhouses. Yeah, we are warriors and, and people, I think husbands, partners, bosses, are so used to asking women to do things or not even asking and just expecting. And women rise, they rise to the occasion. But my question is, should we always be rising or should we let others take some on and recognize that systemically, this is not sustainable for women to operate this way. And so we need to be able to define and stand up for and have other people respect our boundaries. And once we're able to do that, then we have more power, like an empowerment to be able to make some of those more fluid or intuitive kind of navigation of what our priorities are at any given moment. And this is obviously a stretch. This is my stretch vision, right? This isn't going to happen overnight. And some people are doing it really well and other people might just be on that journey, but it can be extremely liberating to be able to know in a single moment what, what is calling for your attention. There's a deep presence. And, and like you say, your body is also a, a great signal as to what's important right now. You're right. And we do know when our our boundaries are are being crossed, it is a feeling. And that's why we end up burning out and having resentment because every time it happens, we feel it and it affects us. So I suppose it's just that shifting that, because there is such a pride. And even when I hear you say that we are warriors, I'm so proud to be a woman because one of the ladies I interviewed previously, she was a hundred years old and we were talking about the war and she goes, 
oh, you can always depend on women to do what needs to be done. And I remember just getting chills and, oh my God, you're so right. And it feels the same in the pandemic. You can always depend on women to do what needs to be done. So how do we shift from that? Because, oh my goodness, I want to be that woman. How do we shift from that? I got goosebumps when you asked that because maybe my response to that would be a, a bit less traditional, maybe surprising, but we have to include men in the conversation. And I go back to that systemic lens again, for any true transformation to happen, we have to look at the system and what's missing in the system or what is it asking for? And a huge part of why our society works the way it does is because men have designed the majority of our systems. Yeah. And for them to be part of redesigning, they have to understand the perspective and be willing to ask for the perspective of women and how this burden or how this design is not working for them anymore. It's not working for us. We are empowered. We are educated. We are contributing members to communities. We are no longer simply or solely in in the home front. And there's so many of us women that are trying to do it all and we cannot do it all. And we need help from our brothers and sisters. A couple of years ago, there was an international women's day celebration at one of the offices that I was at. And I could see them rallying all these women and giving out goodie bags of lipstick and tampons and lip liners. And I just laughed to myself. I thought, what a beautiful camaraderie building event for women But what was shockingly missing was men at that event. And I thought if we really wanted to shift the dial systemically for women, we have to be able to have these conversations with men as well. And believe it or not, there are so many men out there that want to be part of the conversation. They simply do not know how to be invited. And I think that's really important as well, because As a white woman, I've also been trying to do more self-reflection on the privilege I have. I haven't really even appreciated my privilege as an educated person. I hadn't really been aware of my, my racial privileges. And through this process of reading about it and really trying to self-reflect, I think I probably have got better understanding of saying, wow, I didn't realize that I was part of this. And and so I think men can get to the same place with gender issues. But again, maybe it is that it just takes so much self-reflection and discomfort to, to get there, plus some guidance. I definitely had to have the books that I could read that kind of said, think about this, think about that. But they do, they take you through good steps. So I'll really reflect on that even more to think about, yeah, how I can incorporate that into my work in terms of how did I get better awareness and again same knowing that it's just a continuous journey because again it's not there's no point in sort of blaming and saying you're doing all these things because when you're just unaware that's what it is you are unaware of the part you are playing so often I think that's right and that's why any person or leader's biggest asset is curiosity how do I get curious about my blind spots and, and that's the thing about transformation. The beautiful thing about transformation is you're not trying to fix something. You're trying to see future opportunities. And so I, I want you to open people's minds up to the fact that absolutely we can change as a result of some kind of pain or dissatisfaction, but we can also 
seek to change through future possibility, desire, wanting. And that's where that curiosity starts to come in. If I can be curious about what don't I know, um, maybe I can start to have conversations to understand what I don't know. Maybe I can pick up a book or read about it. But without that curiosity, we stay the same. Yeah. And that's why I said to you before, when we were talking about how do you enter organizations, I say, Jacqueline, it always starts with a conversation and a lot of listening and a little bit of asking, because I want to know, I want to know what matters to you. I want to know why you desire change and, and why you care about it so much, because we have to have that emotional connection to change. We have to want it. And want it in ourselves. <laughs> I'm not here to tell anybody that they have to change and not everybody is ready either. And that's perfectly fine. I want everyone to know out there that they will know when the calling for change is knocking on their door. Indeed. So I want us to wrap up a little bit. Time is running away from us. Just given your amazing international experiences, is there anything you'd like to share there of places where you're seeing things really working well for working mums or solutions that you've drawn on from around the world because of that experience and through the places you've lived and all the different places you've worked? Yes. And I think in Australia, if I start there, since I'm living here right now, what I see in relation to moms is much more government and organizational support for working moms. And that's not to say there isn't room for improvement, but as compared to the U.S., I see much more generous uh, leave policies. I see more generous government support in terms of um, childcare, in terms of maternity leave pay in terms of even things like the maternal health services. So when you come back from maternity leave, you have a maternal health nurse that supports you and links you to a mother's group. And so there's a lot more community building and family planning support that I've seen in Australia as compared to the US. I also see part-time work, flexible working and job sharing. Again, some improvement that we can make, but I see that more as part of the norm here in the working culture. For women, not yet men, I think there's some work to do around how we're more inclusive about men in the parenting journey. Uh, but for women especially, and in my memory of, of the U.S., that, that just wasn't talked about, that just wasn't discussed. It was really hard to fight for even a four-day work week as a woman. And, and if we want to get even more progressive, the stories we read about and hear that are coming out of the Nordics, where gender equity is much more on par, where the role of the woman and the man is much more equitable in the workplace and in the home, we see some phenomenal things that those regions are doing about government support, family planning, and workplace equality. Even something as simple as paternal leave, paternity leave, for example, I, I got to take a year off in Australia when I went on maternity leave and my husband had to fight for two weeks off. And part of the stress of raising a newborn was for me healing my body and being really stressed out about after two weeks that I not only had to care for myself, but I had to care for this brand new being in the world. And I was angry, Jacqueline, I was angry at the system. <laughs> I said, we need to help men more because I knew also he didn't want to go back to work. He wasn't ready after two weeks. And so when we look at the Nordics, we can really learn a lot from them around gender equity and how that translates into systems and policies in place. It's been lovely just having a chat about things that matter to me and how we can change the world together. 
Thank you so much for listening today. Please take a moment to watch my TEDx talk. The YouTube link is in the show description, and my talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. If your organization needs to kickstart its burnout efforts with an inspiring keynote, I can talk about my story, the science behind burnout, and the science and practice of preventing burnout from my own experience, my podcast guests, and my public health behavior change multi-level approach. Are you worried about your employees burning out? Are you losing some of your best talent, but you're too exhausted and burned out yourself to solve this problem? Are you concerned that any efforts you will make will be wasted? I understand. Would you like a clear roadmap for solving burnout and DEI challenges in one that you can adjust to your company culture? I can provide a strategic plan of evidence-based solutions matched to your needs and a blueprint process to implement them in your workplace to improve psychological safety, reduce burnout and turnover, and ensure that your company remains a fair and value-driven company for thriving employees, where you are also no longer burned out and instead can effectively support others. The best kickstart is through a keynote. So just contact me through my website at drjacquelinecurr.com. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious mental health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. You're a fighter Push the limits and see it You're already there Told you we going higher Ain't no stopping us We're going in for the win And we're gonna celebrate Then we're gonna do it all over again And we're gonna rock this place Cause this is our day Feel the power Everything that you need